0: Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. I'm the founder of the Miller Law Group and director at the Center for Understanding in Conflict, and I am on a mission to change how people divorce and help them divorce with dignity. And my guest today is Jonathan Satosky. He is a CEO and chief behavioral coach at Satosky Asset Management. He provides leadership, coaching, advanced financial planning, and oversight across client relationships and business operations. Jonathan is a creative at heart. He's always drumming up new ideas and seeking solutions to give his team and clients the greatest probability of sustainable success. Before founding SAM in 2007, Jonathan served over 13 years at American Express Financial Advisors, where he was recognized by the Chairman Advisory Council as one of the youngest top 10 advisors at the company. Jonathan holds the certified financial planner and chartered financial consultant Certified Investment Management Analyst, and Certified Private Wealth Advisor Designations. Welcome, Jonathan Satofsky. It's a pleasure to have you on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, that's a long bio with lots of uh, financial credentials. And one of the things that we were talking about uh, as being something that would really be a relevant thing for people getting divorced is understanding how divorce affects their taxes. And what uh, problems people who are getting divorced might be facing. And what are the common problems that you see people running into when they're getting divorced or not necessarily paying enough attention to when they're thinking about the divorce process?
1: Well, it's interesting. Generally, in what I have found in over 25 years of being uh, trying to help families with money and their relationship with money, it's not uncommon for one spouse or the other to delegate responsibilities about money and not wanting to be involved. So at the forefront, if you begin to understand the root of the issue when, when coupling or decoupling, one of the most important things is to have both spouses involved in the accumulation or decumulation of assets throughout the course of the marriage in order to foster a healthy understanding of how things work. If you come upon a situation where divorce happens and one of the spouses is not informed, the magnitude of trust amplifies because they don't understand. There's a complete lack of education and understanding. So I think it's incumbent upon people at the, that wasn't exactly your question, but it's incumbent upon people at the get go to be educated in how money works, to understand how a balance sheet works, how a cash flow statement works. And, you know, if one spouse is the primary breadwinner, to understand, okay, if something happens, this is traditional financial planning, not just in retirement, but in death or disability, what happens if the family loses that primary income source? What is the balance sheet and accumulation of assets? How does that support and sustain the surviving spouse? So, in theory, in traditional planning, if you look at something from that angle, the same theoretically can be held in the process of divorce. It's just theoretically half the assets.
0: Right. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think what you say is a really a nice idea, right, that people would be involved. And I think it's a really good idea for people to talk about money before they get married. It's part of what I think of when we work in the prenuptial process. You know, it's not just about talking about what's going to happen in the event of death or divorce, but really what's going to happen during the marriage in order to maximize the couple's ability to have that kind of conversation and share that kind of understanding. And yet, and this is kind of a big but, people don't. And people have different relationships to money and and couples often divide responsibility and understanding of tasks that need to happen, including the task of money. So, I mean, sometimes you have a couple where one spouse is completely involved. You know, one spouse spends the money and the other one worries, you know, (laughs) earns it and manages it and deals with the accountant and the financial advisor and the financial planner and all of that stuff. Uh, but the other one is just sort of responsible for distributing it. And other times you have a relationship where there's more balance. Uh, so if people are coming to a divorce and they have one of those financial divisions where one person really doesn't understand what's going on with with the money how do you think that person can bring him or herself up to speed enough to talk about the financial issues in the divorce and have enough understanding so that they can feel reasonably confident that they're that they understand what their financial future holds
1: as you said it's unfortunate that this happens and, and I have to beg and cajole the spouse to just show up once a year, you know, I, you know, just just to look at a balance sheet, just to try to understand it. And I, I heard the other day that uh, 2% of people in the world understand math, and then there's the other 98% that, you know, it's like Greek and people don't want to think about it at all. So how do they get to understand it? Well, it's sort of a phobia when someone has a fear or intimidated by numbers of just throwing their hands up in there and saying, I just don't understand So to combat that, you know, the hope is that they can retain a financial planner or there is a designation, another one of the designations for continued education is uh, a certified, uh, you know, financial divorce analyst, you know, a CDFA, Certified Divorce Financial Analyst, where they learn about educating the spouses about what pre- and post-marital assets look like in trying to find a common ground and a mediation so that they can do some financial planning if there was a compassionate divorce where that each party wanted to be civil and you wanted to communicate you would say okay how do we split the assets to give each person the you know some security and quality of life and some confidence to even so much as create a simple budget say okay here's the assets that you're going to get and here's the income you're going to get and you know you're gonna have to live on this, you know, here, you're going to have X amount of months. And, you know, oh, well, I want to buy a house. Okay, well, let's talk about what you can afford in a house, you know, or or rent, you know, post-divorce. And it's much easier sitting down and looking at it unemotionally. As is often said, you know, most people are uh, are Einstein for others and Mr. Magoo for themselves. So to get some <laughs> objectivity and, and take the emotion out of it really helps quite a bit.
0: Well, it almost seems... Ludicrous to say take the emotions out of the money because there's so much emotion around money issues in our culture. I mean, money is so much more than a way to pay the bills, right? It's the way we, it's about power. It's about influence. It's about success, the way we compare ourselves to our families of origin and each other. And there's so much more to it than just financial planning. And so when you say, Jonathan Sadowski, that's like well let's take the emotion out of the money you know listen I'm a divorce professional it, it's hardly ever uh, that, that the emotion is out of the money so how do people do that how can you separate out for our listeners feeling even just when pe- we ask people to do their budgets we have to do that now I budget is a word I happen to hate because it's like the word diet right I mean diet implies restriction right you're not going to eat fat you're not going to eat sugar. You're not going to eat salt. It's going to be something you're denying yourself. And I think budget also has that same sort of sense of of denial. Uh, But sometimes when people are looking at their cost of living, how they distribute the money in order to live the life that they're leading, they often come back to me, and I don't know if you have this experience too, and they are apologetic. Oh, I know I shouldn't spend so much money eating out. I shouldn't spend so much money on clothes. We shouldn't spend so much money on vacations. And there's so much sort of self judgment there. Anyway, that was a lot I asked you. So what do you think about all of that?
1: Well, I'm with you. I find the most painful part of financial planning budgeting. You know, I started when I was 22 years old trying to help people, and people would hire me that were doctors, lawyers, hedge fund managers, private equity people, people that were brilliant in their field. You know, a lot of Wall Street people. You know, it was very interesting. I was like, why would they hire me? I know nothing. I'm 22. But just the simple act of creating a balance sheet and a cash flow statement is very revealing because it's like going to a doctor and getting your blood work. If I go to a doctor and he takes my blood and he says, you have a high cholesterol or you have, you know, he's just giving me the facts or, you know, doing an x-ray, here it is. So from a planning standpoint, if I take an x-ray once a year of someone's finances and I look at the budget, like, okay, you make X amount a year or whatever, pick a number, you know, a hundred thousand or a million dollars a year, whatever the number is. And just ballpark, I oversimplify, if I were to give you a check that you didn't have to pay any taxes, what do you think you would need to be able to not work anymore? To, do, to live the life that you would feel financial freedom? You know, the idea of beginning with the end in mind. And so people throw out a number, you know, 10,000 a month, 50,000 a month, 100,000, you know, it depends on the, you know, where the person's coming from. And i say, okay, fine. It's a starting point. It's not an end-all, be-all. It's fine. Life happens, and it's almost a certainty that you're not going to be on budget. There's no way. You know, life, you're going to make an excuse every year from my experience that, oh, well, this year we have this, and this year, I'm, I'm not your priest. I don't want you to feel guilty coming to me. I'm just trying to help, because everything is rooted off of how can you make decisions if I don't know what you need, if I'm beginning with the end in mind, you know, for retirement, for insurance, for uh, accumulation for risk, you know, you know, these are important factors. The most important factor is what do I need to be able to ideally pay you out in pension or you're creating your own social security for yourself. So once we get a number and we pick a number, pick, you know, again, I'll use 10,000 as example. If I sit down with them a year later and we just even go through the simple exercise of saying, okay, you have X amount in the bank, 10,000, 100,000 million. The truth theorem is how much you have in the bank at the end of the year and how much you saved relative to that. Oh, you said you're spending X amount. I see your income. I see the taxes. And there's no guilt here, but let's just be honest. Let's call a state a state. You're not really spending $100,000 know, to live. You're spending $200,000 a year to live. It's okay. I'm not here to judge you. We just need to calibrate the decision-making around what you actually need. And let's just be honest about it. I want you to be able to maintain the quality of life that you want. I don't want you to eat ramen noodles and curl up in a corner and wait to die. I want people to have the greatest quality of life possible. It's a process that takes a long time for trust and joint understanding. And in divorce, as you pointed out, there's so much emotion, fear, emotion, guilt. You know, you just compound everything times 10, and it becomes so much harder to calm the emotions and get down to rational thinking of, this is what it is. This is what you're going to get. Like you know, There isn't really, you have to figure it out. How are you going to live and design a quality of life that you want on whatever number that you're going to have or the assets or income you're going to have? So there's a couple of simple rules of thumb that are helpful here to get people's mind wrapped around designing a life. And the first one, which is one of the largest expenses, housing. Tell me if I'm going too deep on this Service is helpful.
0: I want to remind people that they're listening to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Catherine Miller, and we're here on WVOX 1460 AM, alternate Wednesdays from 5 to 530. And we're also available as a podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And I'm talking today with Jonathan Satowski about financial planning, taxes, and divorce. And we were just talking about some of the places where people maybe don't have the world's best judgment and you were about to talk about housing. So let's hear about that.
1: Well, just just understanding simple rules of thumb, which go back to lending, you know, housing should be about 28 to 33% of your income. That's the max. And that number is a rule of thumb. It's not precise, but generally that's actually how lenders look at housing of what you can afford in a mortgage. So, you know, if someone has 10,000 a month of income, they, their housing shouldn't be more than 2,800 to 3,300 a month. And that's important because there's other expenses in life. You don't want to be house rich and cash poor. And I think, you know, particularly in the, you're in the Northeast in the Northeast housing costs are quite expensive. Okay. So that decision is going to help people have breathing room and bandwidth for a lot of other decisions if they can get that one right.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of people really, with the house, the home that the family has lived in has a lot of emotional resonance too, and I think a lot of people try to hold on to it even when it might not be financially wise to do that. What is your thinking about the balancing of stability for the family versus the cost of housing?
1: Well, from an it depends on the rest of the balance sheet investment standpoint, as you pointed out, of what's affordable, because at the end of the day as is uh you know said when you get on an airplane, you know, the most important thing if we have an emergency is to put your oxygen mask on first before you take care of the person sitting next to you, even if it's your child or your or, or a parent. And that's important in the calculus of housing because you think you're providing stability. Oh, I don't want to change the house for the kid, you know, or for the kids, you know, this is this very uh common. That. For emotional reasons, when you go through a divorce, you know, it, it's best not to make any major decisions for a year because, you know, people aren't generally thinking very rationally. So maybe you can give a year hiatus. But thereafter, if you start thinking a little bit more clearly, the reality is if you want to have freedom, financial freedom and independence, historically, housing has not been the best investment over the last 50 years. It generally goes up by about inflation, the Northeast certain pockets of areas have been hotter than others. But generally, when people come to a financial planner and they're like, okay, great, I'm 60, 70, I want to retire. And you look at their balance sheet and they have you know, $5 million in the house and virtually no assets. You're like, well, what are you going to eat? How are you going to have money to eat? Well, you have to sell the house in order to live. And there's a lot of people that get into that position that are forced sellers of their home in order to support their lifestyle. So you want to Really look at the balance sheet clearly to have an honest conversation about can you sustainably support living in the house or do you need to temporarily maintain the house to get a kid through middle school or high school, a shorter, shorter window of time and then say, okay, after that window, then I'll recalibrate. But it really yeah. depends on prioritizing the amount of financial freedom because if there's also an opportunity cost of money, not just the money tied up in the house, but the caring cost of the house, can that be redirected towards better use? Both give this, whatever spouse more financial freedom and the child more financial freedom and designing a life more imminent to say, you know what, let's be more creative at designing a life that's sustainable, that is reducing the stress because stress kills. And if you can create a more harmonious situation, then you can live a happy life and you can recalibrate, you know, and redesign the next chapter that could be more creative than previous, where that people are anchored and overweight and housing and stressed out.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm I'm wondering as you're talking, when you say more creative, what does that mean to you? Because it's in your bio also. What is the the value of being creative with your finances as you see it, Jonathan?
1: So, what do people work for? They might work because they have a passion for a job, but many people work because they need the money. They're not working for pursuit of a passion or pursuit of bliss, unfortunately. People are like, oh, how can I stop this job? You know, when can I get out of this? Well what do they want to get out of it? People are really at the end of the day looking for freedom. Freedom of time, freedom of money, freedom of relationships, freedom of purpose, freedom to to do what they want to do with who they want to do it, where and when they want to do it. And so if you're really thinking creatively, how do you give yourself that creativity? The first thing at the core of it is you want to minimize your fixed obligations. If I don't have a massive overhead, you give yourself a lot more freedom if you don't need to cover such a heavy lifestyle and heavy bills. So people go on vacation right now, right? I'm on vacation at the moment, and I'm traveling, and I could rent a hotel for $1,000 a night or $100 a month, you know, depending on the, the style to which I'd like to live. And creatively, with Airbnb and you know Booking.com or Kayak, you know, people can travel much more creatively, much more cheaply. I mean, what I'm putting a head down on a pillow, like I really need to pay for an extraordinarily fancy you know place to stay. That gives me that. That's a short-term sacrifice of saying I'm not going to stay in a five-star hotel in order to give myself more spending money to travel more, to eat better, to really reprioritize and jigger the values that you have in life that really are meaningful, which, you know, in, in many cases, you realize that shared experiences are more valuable than stuff. So that's what I mean by creativity is, is how do you design a life that you can recalibrate the, the priorities and values that are important to you and your family and or of uh, a way that you can feel like you can design your own financial freedom. And if it means, you know, reducing your overhead with housing, great. So reduce your overhead with housing, you know, live somewhere that is, you know, not so suffocating.
0: I'm Catherine Miller and you're listening to Divorce Dialogues here on WVOX 1460 AM every other Wednesday from 5 to 530 and also available as a podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and on the podcast website, DivorceDialogues.com. And I'm talking today with Jonathan Satosky about financial planning, taxes, and divorce. And, Jonathan, if people are interested in learning more about you, what you do, or your firm, how can they find out more and get in touch?
1: So we do have a social media presence, the various social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, um, and the like, uh, YouTube. Although it's all rooted from our website, which is at Satovsky.com, which is S-A-T-O-V-S-K-Y. Dot com And uh, we have an office in New York City on 37th and Madison. We do work with a fair amount of uh, divorcees and widowers, which is um, common practice. And coincidentally, in divorce, which has happened a number of times, we end up working with both spouses because we're able to separate it and uh, give themselves another point person to be able to help them navigate. So it's kind of nice. Um, and we'll reach at 212-584-1900 is the New York City number, if anyone some uh,
0: That's great information. So, Jonathan, when people are getting divorced and they're thinking about dividing up their property, how do you help people... Think that through in terms of we talked a little bit about real estate. There might be businesses. There might be appreciated equities. Uh, there might be personal property and collections. You know, how should people be thinking about the best way to do that? That's fair to both of them, but also takes into account the value and liquidity of the variety of, of possibilities.
1: That's an excellent question, and you touched on a couple of things that maybe people would gloss over but liquidity is critically important depending on which spouse has the earnings capacity going forward the spouse without earning capacity would need more access to liquid funds to be able to support and sustain a lifestyle because the other has money coming in if you just receive illiquid assets and you have no income then you become a forced seller and being a forced seller in any situation is not optimal because it puts you in a position where you have to be a price taker versus be patient to wait for the optimal time to provide liquidity on an asset to be able to convert to income or money to be able to support uh, one's lifestyle. So that's a preeminent thought that people should be mindful of.
0: Okay. So liquidity and not putting yourself in a position where you have to sell something because you need the money at an unoptimal an time. So that's one thing to think about. And what about just circling back to the taxes? You know, when in the old days when alimony or maintenance, as we call it in New York, was deductible, meaning the spousal support was deductible, although child support wasn't, we had a real opportunity to leverage a difference between tax brackets and maybe create a little bit more cash. But that opportunity has gone away, at least for the time being. What are some other tax concerns that people should think about? Sometimes I hear them worrying about maybe losing the uh, second exemption on the sale of a primary residence, a capital gains exemption, or, you know, other things like that. Or what, are there some things that you think people should know or watch out for as they think about divorce that they might not otherwise think about?
1: Well, that's a very good point, the exemption on a house, you know, also, You know, you might receive the the house as an asset. The question becomes, what is the cost basis to which you inherited? Because if you do end up having to sell the home, there could be tax consequences above and beyond that exemption. The receipt of assets, you know, knowing that the tax cost of assets, retirement or non-retirement assets, that all comes into consideration and looking at what the um, translation of that turns into in terms of being able to live, you know, even retirement assets generally aren't drawn till 59 and a half to 70 and a half, 72 now. So that's a consideration for a younger couple getting divorced. If the majority of the assets are tied up in retirement plans that, you know, they may need more liquid assets and non-qualified assets to be able to cover that gap of time and forego the retirement assets to the working spouse, for example. So there's, you know, ways to juggle it. If, if there was, a conciliatory and a, a collaborative divorce or a mediation where that, you know, that's what a ideal outcome would be.
0: So just in our last minute, Jonathan, what do you think is your best advice for somebody who's just thinking about divorce now or just in the beginning? What should they do?
1: I would say that you should try to be a... Certified Divorce Financial Analyst or a mediator, and recognize the incentives of the professionals that you hire, and the you know when you're dealing with the legal system, it's extraordinarily expensive and contentious, and it leads to a lot of distrust and a lot of money going down the uh, a lot of money and emotions being wasted. So, if you can find a, an objective um, middle party, there is a collaborative process where you can get the attorneys, the uh, forensic accountant, a therapist, and a certified, you know, divorce financial analyst in a room and, you know, save everyone a lot of time, energy, money, and emotions to, to try to find a middle ground that's fair and reasonable for everybody, you know.
0: All right. We're going to have to leave it there. Jonathan Satosky, thank you so much for being our guest.
1: Thank you for having me.